0: Chapter 40, We're going to be looking at the whole chapter today. If I say the words, Amelia Earhart, what instantly comes to mind? Mystery, unsolved mystery. That is the, one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. We still don't know what happened to Amelia Earhart. If you had asked a person in the late 19th century and you had said the words, Sir John Franklin, would have elicited the same reaction, unsolved mystery. The expedition that was led by Captain John Franklin, 129 men sailed from England aboard two ships, the Terror and the Erebus, to discover the elusive Northwest Passage across northern Arctic Canada. It It was the best outfitted expedition ever put together at that time. It had food supplies on ship for over three years. It had special ships made with iron reinforcement so it could take the pressure of the ice it had even had a new technology at the time called steam propulsion they sailed from greenhithe england on the morning of may 19 1845 to great fanfare and as they went over the horizon that was the last anybody heard from them all 129 In the decades that followed, several rescue missions were launched and really returned with nothing except Eskimo stories about two ships that were caught in the ice for over two years. Over the last 170 years, various clues have been unearthed, including some iron that was found on the shores of various islands thought to have been part of those ships. They have unearthed some ice graves where Frozen bodies were preserved and even a stone cairn that contained just a a fascinating yet cryptic account of the demise of that expedition. When I hear and learn of things like this, the first questions that go through my mind is what were these people thinking as they were stranded? How did these men keep their spirits up day by day, week by week, month by month, perhaps year by year? Stuck alone in the ice for two years, what hope did they cling to? Freezing, running out of food, did they lose hope at some point? Did they give up at some point? How did they endure under such great difficulty? That's the very basic question that comes to my mind. And that's where my mind wanders this week, has wandered this week as I was pondering chapter 40 in Genesis regarding Joseph in this dungeon. What was it like to be in that dungeon day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? What was he thinking when there was no parole system there was no sentence that would end. How did he deal with that? What hope did he cling to? How did Joseph endure under such great difficulty? That's where my mind went this week. What got him through? And that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 40. Look with me at God's word, starting in verse 1. God's word says, Sometime after this, The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. The pharaoh was angry with his two officers and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came in to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces so downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations all belong to the Lord? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so to get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in this pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was the Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We've noted before that Joseph is in about a decade long into his servitude in Egypt, give or take. He was sold into Egypt by his brothers, but as we saw, the Lord was with him, right? And came up and rose up in the ranks in Potiphar's house, slowly rising to some level of responsibility there. But then his hopes get dashed. And he is falsely accused and thrown into a dungeon. But here again, the paragraph right before in, in chapter 39, we see that the Lord was with him again. And favor was bestowed upon Joseph and he was given responsibility even in the dungeon. But here in this chapter, we see hopes dashed yet again. The royal cupbearer returns to his position and he has promised to mention him to Pharaoh And nothing. The cupbearer forgets. That's where we're left in this chapter. The cupbearer forgets Joseph. And I'm sure you have to live and breathe this. I mean, think about it. A couple days go by and and Joseph hears footsteps coming down. And he thinks, this is it. He's mentioned. And nothing. And those days turn into weeks. And nothing. And those weeks turn into months. And those months, as we see in chapter 41, the first couple of words turn into years. Hopes dashed yet again. Like the Franklin Expedition, how did Joseph endure such difficulty? How did he get through it? How did he wake up each day and keep going? Perhaps some of you here know a little bit about what Joseph is experiencing right now in your life. No, you're not in a physical dungeon. I mean, if you think this is a physical dungeon, you have a poor framework for worship. You're not in a physical dungeon. But maybe you're in a dungeon without walls. Maybe you're in a dungeon of years and years and years of singleness. Deep desire to be married and share your life with somebody. But nothing. Maybe you're in the dungeon called an unfulfilling or purposeless job. You wake up, you go to work, you come back. Repeat. Maybe you're in the dungeon of failing health or or perhaps perhaps there's somebody here with, with a terminal diagnosis. Maybe you're in the dungeon called depression. Maybe the dungeon of financial difficulty is looming really closely on your horizon with oil season starting. You don't know how you're going to get through the winter. There are many different dungeons in this life. Addictions, loveless marriages, there are many forms of difficult circumstances in this life and the believer as a believer the question is not so much how do we get out of them but the question is how do we endure them well don't get me wrong god is keenly interested in your destination that's what we Call the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, God does not delight in our dungeons, but He is equally interested in how we get through them, how we endure them, the journey. He's equally interested in how we handle our difficulties. He's equally interested in how we endure these wall-less dungeons. And that's what this chapter is about. That's what this part of Joseph's life is about. And the first lesson we learn from Joseph's life here in this short chapter is you endure them by trusting God. You endure your dungeons by trusting God. If you look at verses 1 through 4, it tells us that Pharaoh threw the cupbearer and the baker in the same dungeon as Joseph. And Joseph, having risen to a place of responsibility, was given responsibility for them to care for them. Now, I don't want us to miss what Scripture doesn't want us to miss here. If you look at verse 1, you see that it says sometime after this, sometime after chapter 39, sometime after he was placed in this dungeon. And verse 4 repeats that. After the cupbearer comes in and the baker comes in, they continued for some time in custody. This paragraph is bracketed with time, a lot of time. God wants us to know that Joseph was in the dungeon for a considerable period of time. We're not told how much, but he was there for a while. Sometime before the cupbearer and the baker arrive, and sometime while they were in prison, in verse, chap, verse 1 in chapter 41, let us know that they were there an additional two years after that. Joseph's dungeon experience was long. And that is critical because our proclivity under long, difficult circumstances is towards what? Doubt. That's our natural slide. A scan through President Abraham Lincoln's statements during the Civil War reveals this slide in his own life. At the start of the war between the states, Lincoln was resolute and visionary. He announced in his inaugural address on March 4th, 1861, he said, The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot's grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell with the cords of this union. You can hear it. A little over a year into the war, on June 28th, 1862, he wrote this. I expect to remain in this contest until successful or till I die or am conquered. A little over, a little few months after that, in August of 1862, after the devastating defeat at Manassas, he wrote this. Well, we are whipped again, I'm afraid. What shall we do? The bottom is out of the tub. The bottom is out of the tub. In December that same year, after Fredericksburg, he wrote, if there is a worse hell, I know not what it is. Five months later, in May of 1863, after the loss at Chancellorsville, he wrote, my God, my God, what will our country say? And a year later, in 1864, he said, he wrote, this war is eating my life out. I have strong impression that I will not see its end. You can hear that downward spiral, can't you? You can hear loss of heart, the loss of hope, the doubt. That's the normal trajectory. And that's the normal spiritual trajectory too for us. Over time in your dungeons, we begin to doubt. We begin to lose hope. We begin to to doubt God's goodness, don't we? Is God really good? We begin to doubt his presence with us, don't we? Is God really with me in this? We begin to doubt that God cares for us, don't we? But we never see a hint of that in Joseph. That's what's so remarkable about Joseph's life. And I think that's one of the reasons that Joseph's life is told to us in such great detail. We see that one night during that time, both the cupbearer and the baker had dreams on that same night. To the Egyptians, dreams were big. Archaeologists have, have unearthed handbooks on dream interpretation in ancient Egypt. Dream interpretations were big. And Joseph saw that they were troubled and asked them what was wrong. And they both explained, we've had these dreams on this same night. This must mean something. And look what Joseph says to them in verse 8. In verse 8, Joseph says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell me them. This is remarkable faith. Do you hear the confidence that Joseph has in God still? after years and years? Doesn't everything belong to God? Tell me. Going from pit to slave to dungeon, Joseph still trusts God. Joseph still believes in God. No doubt has entered into his mind. And in this way, Joseph is quite remarkable. If you know your Bible, you just have to read through some of the great men, right? That have, that tower... In scripture, like Moses, he lost hope. David, David wrote psalms about losing hope. Jeremiah, but not Joseph. Not Joseph. This is absolutely remarkable. That's not to say that Joseph did not desire to be out of this dungeon. All you have to do is look at verses 14 and 15 when he, when he gives the interpretation to the cupbearer. He says, Listen, please don't forget me. I don't want to be here. I, look, my life has been kind of a, a wreckage these last 10 years. Please remember me. He wanted out, but he never lost faith in God, he never doubted God's goodness. And in this regard, Joseph is a towering figure of trusting God. Even though there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And as I read this in context, I think there are two reasons for Joseph's faith in this dungeon. First, he recognized that God was with him in the dungeon. He recognized that God was with him in the dungeon. He recognized God's presence with him. The refrain from the last chapter, you cannot read Scripture out of context. The refrain from the last chapter is, And the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. him." Joseph recognized God's presence and blessing with him while in slavery, while in this dungeon. He was, if you will, looking over his shoulder and seeing God's hand there. And that's what we have to do, too, when we're in our wallless dungeons. We have to realize that God's presence is there, even in the darkest times. My mother brought us up with, certainly, Scripture, but also just sayings. And one of the sayings that she said over and over and over again, especially as teenagers, because teenagers see the darkest things in all the corners, when the night is the darkest, the stars come out. And that is so true. God is there. Even when it's the darkest, you just have to look for him. But I think also that Joseph just didn't realize that he was, God was with him in the dungeon. Joseph recognized that God was outside the dungeon. And I think this is a much weightier thing to wade into here. It's usually said at times like this in sermons, trust God because there is a purpose for your suffering. And that is True. And that is scriptural. Romans 8:28 tells us that all things work towards good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That is scriptural. And that is true. But we can in our hearts warp that verse into something of a guarantee this side of glory. Do you know what I'm saying? We can warp that verse to to make glory mandatory this side of heaven. We hear it all the time on the radio. I was in this terrible marriage, but God had a purpose for it, so I lovingly endured, and now our marriage is perfect. And that's wonderful. God does do the things like that. Or I hate my job, but God had a purpose, so I... Worked on being content and now I love my job. Or I got a new job and a better job. And God does do that sometimes. Or I was single for 24 years out of college, but God had a purpose and I remained pure and I found the love of my life. And God does do that. And there is purpose. And there is glory. Our God is good and loving and caring and desires to give his children good things. And there is indeed a purpose that God is working out in your dungeon, in our lives. But I'd like to go one layer deeper. There's a deeper, more foundational, and harder truth that we have to grasp, so, grasp sometimes. God is trustworthy even when we're never released from our dungeons. It's true. He is trustworthy even when we never see the purpose of our sufferings this side of glory. That is true. And that is the difficulty of verses like Romans 9:20 20 and 21. That's the truth that is being taught there. When God's word says, What shall... Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay that some pottery for noble purposes and some for common? Tough truths. We should trust God. Why? Because he's God. That's the foundation. He doesn't owe us anything. Trust God because he's God. Not for what he can give to you. Not for what he can do for you. Because he's God. That's one of the big lessons of the book of Job, isn't it? Get to chapter 38 and finally God says stop. Who are you? Shall what what was formed say to that who formed it? Shall he demand anything of me? I'm God. Trust God because He's God. And there's no great wonderful illustration there, because it's just a simple truth. Second key we see in enduring our dungeons is that we trusted God, but he also loved others. How do you endure your difficulties your sufferings, your dungeons? You love others. We see that in verses 6 and 7 when Joseph comes down, comes in for, in the morning and he sees that their faces are downcast of the cupbearer and baker. And he asks them, what's, what's the matter? He says, why are your faces downcast today? I think it's amazing, that question. I think that question is remarkable. Joseph is still ministering to people. Joseph still is caring about others, even though he's in prison. Without hope of release, Joseph loves others. Joseph, in other words, is outward-facing. Even in his dungeon. It's so easy for you and for me when we get into difficult situations, long difficult situations, to curl in, isn't it? I've got to close in on me. I've got to take care of me, isn't it? That's most people's natural reaction. When we're hurting, we withdraw. very interesting. I was reading Relevant Magazine and there was an article in it called Things That Hold Us Back From Serving Others. And the list contained things like we think we don't have anything to offer or we're afraid of the unknown or I don't serve because I wasn't appreciated enough last time I served. You know what the number one reason was? On their list anyway. The number one reasons that hold people back from serving others, was that we're, they were waiting for perfect conditions. Waiting for perfect conditions. Here's what the article said. I'll volunteer when I have some extra time and when life eases up. The problem is that you will always be busy. There will always be fires to put out. Ecclesiastes eleven four and 5 says, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will never reap. In other words, if you wait for perfect conditions, they never come. Often when we're going through a rough time, the last thing we want to do is put ourselves out there even more. We're already feeling vulnerable or even downcast, downright fragile. You feel like building a bunker and hiding out Until this excruciatingly slow storm passes on. Has that hit a nerve with anybody? I've seen it over and over again as a pastor. A member is going through a dungeon experience and they begin to withdraw from the body. They say they need time for themselves. They need me time in this season. They meet with me and they ask to be removed from their very serving roles. Now, I don't want to sound draconian here. There are times, commonsensical times in your life. But I simply do not read on the pages of scripture where you stop loving others. Where you stop reaching out. Where you stop caring where you're totally withdrawn and isolated. I just don't see that in Scripture. How easy would it have been for Joseph to see the cupbearer and the baker's faces and said in his mind, yeah, they don't have it half as bad as me. I've been here years. They've only been here a couple months. They know nothing about heartache; they think they have it hard. My brothers sold me into slavery. They should be ministering to me That's but instead he reaches out to them isn 't that amazing that 's why it 's amazing. He reaches out, he wanted to serve them. He cared enough to enter into their grief, into their situation. Tell me about your situation. I'm dying inside, but tell me about your situation. And that is a principle on how you endure your dungeons. You get out of yourself and into others. I have a s- saying hanging next to my monitor. I've said it here before, forgive me. Those of you who have heard it before, but I have this saying right next to my monitor because I need reminding of this. And it says this, Christian ministry is giving when you feel like keeping, praying for others when you need to be prayed for, feeding others when your own soul is hungry, living the truth before people even when you can't see results, hurting with other people even when your hurt can't be spoken, keeping your word even when it's not convenient. Ministry is being faithful even when your flesh wants to run away. That's not for pastors. That's for people that call themselves Christians. Lastly, we see that we have to d- realize that we really, what we really deserve. That's the third principle I see here. We have to realize what we really deserve. To get through your dungeon experiences, you have to realize this. There's actually two twists in this chapter if you saw it. The first is in the dream sequence when the cupbearer gets this great news, right? And then the baker goes, this is great, I'll tell him my dream. And he gets awful news, right? That's the first twist that we see in this. And then the second twist is in Joseph's life. Here he helps this cupbearer, he released, gives him this great interpretation. He gets released, he says, don't forget me, mention me, help me, help me get me out of this prison. And that we're left with the last verse of this chapter, which I think is very telling. He was forgotten. There's a twist there. The cupbearer forgot Joseph for two whole years, it says. Joseph expecting release, was forgotten. The baker, expecting life, was given death. These twists point to a common mindset in our dungeons. That common mindset is the kind of fairy tale ending. We all expect the fairy tale ending. We all expect it's going to turn out okay in the end. Right? I mean that's what that's why Hollywood pretty much uses that same Script over and over again. Because we love it. We like to leave the movie theater smiling. We expect life to be positive and turn out well in the end. And when it doesn't, sometimes we don't react well, do we? Ian Duguid in his commentary writes this suffering doesn't automatically produce endurance, character, and hope. Think about that for a second. Suffering doesn't automatically produce endurance, character, and hope. There are plenty of people who suffer and are soured by it, become bitter and cynical. He goes on to say, How do you react in your dungeons? Self-pity. Anger, resentment, heart responses like these are a profound statement, he says, of what you believe about God in the world. It shows at a deep level that you believe that the world and God exists to glorify you by making my fondest hopes come true. That is why I feel so let down and betrayed, he says. I feel that God owes me better than this. Or at least owes me an explanation as to why my life is this way. It's pretty profound. Is that some of your internal monologue? If your dungeon experience goes on long enough? Is that the language that your heart produces? When you get to the end of the rope and you say, come on, this has been long enough. In your dungeons, do you think you deserve better than this? Be honest. Do you think you're owed better? Do you think your situation is unfair? A sense of obligation is always dangerous in your dungeons. Dangerous. It leads and grows such things as self-pity and martyrdom. If you throw those seeds down, you're just going to grow resentment and bitterness and anger, cynicism. And again... You never get a hint of this in Joseph's life. If if you've read ahead, and I hope you have several times, if you've read ahead, you see this in Joseph. In the next chapter, he when he gets released and placed second in command, he doesn't make a beeline of revenge to the cupbearer. You never see that. When his brothers in the next chapter come begging, you never see, this is it, I got the power now could have been very easy for his heart to grow those things over 20 years. You see, what these twists reveal is that we all think we deserve the cupbearer's fate and none of us think we deserve the baker's fate. Is that not true? That's the key to enduring your personal dungeons. That's the key to enduring this difficult life. As a matter of fact, a correct understanding of this is the way to unlock eternal life, actually. It's the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? If you believe in your heart that you actually deserve death for your sins, you are on a Good path to eternal life. If you really believe Romans 6 when it says, the wages of my sin, of Blake's sin, is spiritual death, you're on a good path to eternal life. If you believe Ezekiel 20, 18, when it says, The one who sins is the one who dies. You've made your first step out of the dungeon. Capital T, capital D. That's the surprising twist that the gospel gives us. To receive eternal life, you have to actually believe that you deserve to die. if you think you're a pretty good person who've done some bad things and, you know, made some mistakes, not always lived up to it, capital I-T, but overall, you know, when I look back over my life, it's more good than bad. The gospel simply hasn't transformed you. If you think that the way you des- that you deserve eternal life If you think that you deserve eternal life because of the good things you've done, I don't know if you're saved. Because the twist the gospel reveals is we who deserve imprisonment were released, and Jesus, who deserved release, was imprisoned. We who deserve to be forgotten were remembered, and Jesus, who earned remembrance by his righteous life, was forgotten, turned away from by God. We who deserved to have our head cast down were lifted up, and he who deserved to have his head crowned with glory was lowered. We who deserved death were given life, and he who lived up to God's perfect standard was unjustly accused and died. We who deserved to be hung on a tree were freed and he that deserved to be freed was hung on a tree. We who earned the fate of the baker were treated like the cupbearer and he who earned the cupbearer's freedom was given the fate of the baker. Because of that, because of that, and Jesus' work on our behalf, you do have the fairy tale ending. You do. You get to live with Christ forever in eternity in paradise. Jesus said it this way in, in, in John 11. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. And then he said this to Martha. And I say this to you. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your work. Spirit, only by your power will you change lives through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me as we close our worship service by worshiping our God.